0: Welcome to the podcast where we bring on remarkable people to tell their stories.
1: I'm Paul Gilman. I'm Daniel Lance. And this is Podso One.
0: Welcome to a special Thursday episode of Podso One. The way it goes is that whenever time permits, we will release episodes on Thursdays as well as the usual Mondays, and this is one of them. This week, we have my dear sister Arielle Lance on the show. A lover of travel and adventure, Arielle spent two years in Casablanca, Morocco as a Fulbright scholar, then returned to the United States for a master's in Montessori education. She now teaches middle school in Seattle. In our conversation, Arielle shares her perspectives on Moroccan slash Middle Eastern culture as it compares to the rest of the world. We also get into the Montessori method and its history and how she's had to adapt it as an educator to the COVID-induced new normal. Finally, I'd like to wish Ariel a happy early birthday, which is on July 14th. So here's Ariel Lance. And we're live. <laughs> Arielle, uh, thank you so
1: much for coming on to Podso One.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. <laughs> I'm very nervous.
1: <laughs> we're, we're excited, too. No reason to be nervous. Uh, Daniel and I will uh, make you feel as comfortable as possible, I'm sure. Yeah.
0: And you only have to worry about the opinions of, uh, maybe like 12 listeners. So. <laughs> you're, you're downgrading us. We're at least for, at
2: honestly for, for now, who knows, man, for the future.
0: <laughs> yeah, this could blow up, you know, this could be, this could be huge. So, um, cool. So one of the things about, about you that I think is really, uh, that I think of a lot when I think of Ariel, uh, and you're my sister, I should get that out there.
2: Uh, (laughs) Yes,
0: (laughs) is that you love to travel Um, and Mm -hmm. we moved around a lot as kids all over the world really but you continue to have this love of travel and adventure and uh, one of those uh, adventures that you went on was the the Fulbright program right after your undergraduate uh, at Mount Holyoke Mm -hmm. so um, what gave you the idea of a Fulbright and like uh, how did like did you expect to get admitted and uh, then what about, you know, where they sent you? How did you feel about the placement?
2: So, um, I think I first heard about Fulbright at some point in my first three years of college, really. Um, and somebody mentioned, might have mentioned to it, I was really lucky at Mount I got a lot of professors who like really, were really invested in, um, helping the students, right. Just kind of, get opportunities and find and connecting them with opportunities that are right for them. So Mm -hmm. um, I was studying international relations and I'm sure at some point my advisor uh, might've mentioned or encouraged me to apply to the Fulbright program. It was one of several kind of scholarship opportunities to go abroad that he pushed me towards. And um, you have to, with the Fulbright program you apply to a country and I ended up applying to Morocco and I thought, Pretty carefully about it. Um, also, I was applying as a what's called an English teaching assistant, an ETA. So there's two different types of Fulbright scholarships. There's a research scholarship, um, where you apply as a student who's going to go and do research, or ETA, you apply as a college grad to go and teach English. And depending on the country, the, each country varies in terms of the le- uh, the placement that of uh, the level of education. The system that you're put into. So by that I mean, like in Morocco, ETAs are um, work with university students, and in other countries, ETAs work with elementary age students. Um, and so it just depends on the country. Working with university students was not my first choice. I got my teaching license to teach uh, at the elementary level in college, but um, I was very, really drawn to Morocco because I felt like it was a cool intersection of like my experience and uh, kind of my uh, linguistic com- comfort area. So I studied French starting in high school all the way through college. And um, as Daniel might have mentioned before, like we spent a lot of our years in the Middle East. And so for me, that that corner of Africa was a place I'd never been to before, and I was very interested in the intersection of like the colonial influence from France and Spain. And then also sort of the, the longer history of, of, of this, like the Sahara Desert and the nomadic tribes that move through there. And then obviously there's um, a lot of, there, it's an Islamic country um, and was kind of the uh, most Western edge of the uh, like Islamic empire when it was around. So anyways, um, yeah, no, I it's, really-
0: It's great. Huh? It's, it's, uh, it's such a crossroads, like culturally, geographically, morocco is and, you know they have like french and arabic and then i think they also have like
2: spanish.
0: oh spanish oh mm-hmm. obviously because spain's right there uh but they were calling it was colonized by france but so which really
1: mm-hmm. by it was in half. She's, she's a teacher daniel she's teacher.
0: <laughs> well i'm learning so great job Ariel. Uh, which uh which city did you end up uh landing in
2: uh, so I was assigned to Casablanca. So in, in the full, once I, so anyway, I applied my, the summer of my junior year and um, didn't, didn't get it, didn't find, like it's an intense application process. It took a few months. I think my final application went through in October. It involved like an interview by faculty on my campus. And then it was just the waiting game. And I spent most of my senior year spring interviewing for jobs and schools and had no idea what I was doing. And we were coming down to like two days before graduation. And uh, I had not, I didn't have a job. And I had not yet heard back from the Fulbright. And so I just was like, I had no idea what I was going to do. And I remember I was packing out my dorm room. Um, and I got the email that I got accepted. And I, I was just like, totally, it was totally unexpected. By that point, I had just like given up hope, you know, and I was like, I'm gonna have to find something else to do. Um, so it was crazy. It was a crazy feeling of like excitement and relief, but also like, kind of re, it's been it had been so, so long since I applied I was kind of like what did I sign myself up for here um, but uh, I got assigned to Casablanca so what happens is you're sent to um, like a week-long orientation in DC uh, in the summer and they the commissioner if, uh, in Morocco assigns the people who are accepted to cities and rather than us all being assigned to the same city each ETA is assigned to a different city so we're spread out around the country. And I was assigned to Casablanca, which is um the kind of economic capital of Morocco. It's about an hour south of Rabat, which is the political capital. Um, and it's on the Atlantic coast. And it's um it's definitely just big city, um, and uh very European in a lot of ways as well. Um and uh it was awesome. I mean, it was there was culture shock for sure. Um and there were there were a lot of things that um I didn't love, but there was a lot of things that I, that I still miss, you know? And yeah.
0: so you know. and I uh, lived in Kuwait, uh, yeah. be- like a few years before that, like before you went off to college um, and Kuwait, obviously an Arab nation. Did you feel like the experience from Kuwait helped you along with that culture shock with Morocco?
2: Um. Yeah. Yes. And no. I, th- I mean, definitely being familiar with like what it means to live in an Islamic country was, was useful. Like things didn't, uh, Surprise me in terms of, I knew how to dress modestly and what would be expected of me. Um, And on on the unfortunate side, I was kind of familiar with what happened, like the harassment that happens on a daily basis on the street, if you are a woman in in these countries. Um, So that was, it never got made it easier, but it wasn't exactly shocking. (laughs) Um, And um, having like a a very basic uh, understanding of like some com- conversational Arab- Arabic was also very helpful because what I found immediately, which is no surprise is if I tried to speak in Arabic, even though I never formally studied it and I really don't speak it well, um, I got a different level of respect and kind of uh, c- camaraderie from the people that I was interacting with taxi drivers and my fruit guy and my bread guy, you know, cause in Morocco, everybody's got their own little um, specific thing they sell. And um, <laughs> And so that, you know, the prices would lower, there was a a lot more friendliness when I would try to speak in Arabic. And so I, you know, quickly learned that even though I could speak fluent French, that still had the colonial overtones. And um, it was much more, um, like, culturally, I think, responsive and appropriate in a lot of places to try Arabic.
0: (laughs) French is like the, the language of the elite, like the proper language or oh language like of
2: business medicine yeah
0: and then arabic is like the, the common uh the common man yeah is that i guess i guess that's what lingua franca means or is that completely a different phrase
2: lingua franca that has a different i, can't, I don't know what the meaning is of that now that you asked i don't know
0: <laughs> yeah never mind but uh okay so arabic was like the
2: someone google that
0: <laughs> <laughs> we actually She's,
1: yeah. free to, she's free to google uh we, we just don't google on this
0: our, our personal policy is not to google
1: because oh. sometimes but you're, it... you're, but you're more than welcome to All
2: right. no it's okay i'll look it up later it's always fine hey, hey, <laughs> can, can we
1: talk about uh and this this is an awkward question but uh can you talk more about harassment for women uh in and as an islamic place like that yeah it, it sounds scary
2: um there were only a few situations I found myself in that I was actually afraid. most often it was just annoying and maddening um, but in um and I don't want to speak too generally here because every country is different, but okay, In Morocco in general, the public space is 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 male and the private space is female, and the role of women is very much to be in the home um and so and of course that is that is shifting, and it has been shifting you know um. For years, and and certainly isn't the norm anymore. But there still is sort of the the I think harassment in the form that it happens is kind of a remnant of of that uh, of the shock to kind of women being more and more out in public spaces. Um, and it didn't. What really angered me about it is it didn't matter what I was wearing, or um, uh, what time of day it was. It only mattered if I was walking with a man. And if I was walking with a man, then I was not bothered. Um, Mm. But I could be, I could be like, I would be walking to the bus stop where I got the bus to school um, in the mornings at seven in the morning on a weekday and uh, would hear comments or kissing noises or whatever. It just kind of thrown my direction, you know, so it didn't, (laughs) and again, like what I wore didn't matter. So, you know, I had to, you have to really separate yourself from it because it's not personal to you. It's just, it's like, it's a habit. Um, it's, I, I, you know, I don't quite understand the psychology of it, to be honest. Um, and I, so I don't want to speak for others and, um, make assumptions, but just from someone experiencing it, it, it definitely at certain times it, 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 it takes away your agency a little bit. And it also just it made me such a homebody in a lot of ways. I would go through phases where I didn't want to leave my apartment um, because it was just stressful. It, and, you know, I wasn't afraid for my safety ever. And that's, I was very privileged in that way. I lived in a really nice neighborhood and um, I got to know, you know, the the person who watched the cars on the street and all the vendors and everybody. And, um, you know, they, they were really kind. I remember one time walking um, home from my, I started, going to a gym in my first year and I was walking home and the soccer game had just come out so there's hordes of um, young men moving through the streets and I didn't realize it and I just I just ducked right into this little um, in Morocco they called hanuts, which is like in New York they'd be called bodegas just little shop you know with everything and the the I had never met the shopkeeper actually like this was one that was not at my local and uh, he was so kind. He was like, oh, come on in. Like, do you need tea? Just I'll, I'll tell you when it's safe. Like, just just chill out here. And he like went and stood by the door. And it, and it, was, it was very kind, you know, so it's, def- it's not everybody. And it's I think there's also a, a certain aspect of herd mentality to it. So like groups of young men were a lot more bold <laughs> than, you know, a random one person on the street so Sa- yeah.
1: safety and numbers when you're being inappropriate
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah so tell tell us about the uh the, the positive sides of your experience uh in morocco or in Casablanca. Uh,
2: yeah i mean I, Mar- morocco is a really beautiful country and it's really easy to travel within the country and one of my favorite things about it is uh, everywhere you go is different um and So, you know, like on the Atlantic coast, uh, okay. So one of the things I really miss is surfing. Um, there's amazing surfing and this is something that I didn't realize at all before I moved there. And it ended up being kind of, um, a lifeline for me to a certain extent, because I found in the surf culture of Morocco, um, kind of a safe space from the normal gender norms, as it were, like, it didn't matter that I was, uh, uh, like American or a woman. Um, in going, when I went surfing, you know, everyone, it was just surf culture. Um, that was kind of uh, the norm. And so that was awesome. And, but you can go inland to uh, the mountains there. I mean, like the, the tallest mountain in North Africa is in Morocco. And um, then you go over the mountains into the Sahara desert, which is just stunning. Um, and then if you go farther north in the country, there's a different mountain range where you can go skiing in the winter. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just incredible and it's all connected by trains and it's very easy to go from place to place. Um, I really miss coffee, uh, um, uh, in Morocco. They, they serve coffee in these little tiny, like Moroccan tea glasses and it's like half espresso, half milk called noose noose. And I just, I, re- I miss that. It's so cheap and so delicious. Um, <laughs> I miss the food and the, and the, the fresh, um, vegetables for so cheap. I mean, trucks would kind of drive down my street. I lived in a apartment building, right. But still trucks would drive down my street, like stacked to the brim with just whatever was harvested that day on the farm and just calling out, okay, we've got this for sale today. You know, you just go down and you, and you take it fresh from that truck from that farm, you know, that day. Um, and that's really cool. Um, I miss the, the, like the community, community was really, really big in Morocco, being, being very welcoming, um, and being very neighborly, uh, is just like such a value there. And, um, very different from here. The individualism here is, you know, it, in some ways it's nice. You can be anonymous, (laughs) you know, when, when you want to be, but Um, like people knew who I was and, and cared about me, you know, and I, and I did the same, you know, and I, I think like that is, um, something that, that was, that was really awesome. And yeah, just for me, it was my first time living abroad on my own. And I learned that, um, it was kind of a rude awakening in in a sense, because I figured out how much my family protected me. You know my family unit uh, was a was a comfort and a source of protection and normalcy whenever we moved to all these different places growing up and and suddenly it was just me <laughs> um, so um but it was cool to have that experience very outside my comfort zone, even though i was i 'm familiar with living abroad you know
1: <laughs> right i'm I'm fascinated by everything you just said, but i'm most fascinated i think by the surf culture in Morocco. I did not see that coming i didn't know that was a thing oh it's uh, huge huge, <laughs> huge like there are surf shops mm-hmm,
2: uh, mm-hmm. really oh yeah and people travel from all over the world to come surfing in morocco um the south of morocco is like the best surfing um casablanca like people would kind of you know they'd be like oh casablanca is not that good but it was great <laughs> for me <laughs> uh- <laughs> And um, one thing I I love about it, okay, there's no sharks and there's a a bunch of what I call baby waves. And so like, you're not, you don't have to be a good surfer to get out and actually catch waves and ride waves. Um, It's not like when you go surfing in Hawaii, you know, you're dealing with big waves. And so you need to know what you're doing. And um, it's not that way in Morocco. I mean, like most waves I was surfing were like three feet or less. And so they were just like, little baby waves. And that was definitely my comfort level. Um, But there are, there's like a very famous bay in Morocco called Inswan, And it's a, um, that's a town, the name of the town. And th- you kind of walk out with your board along the edge of the town, jump in the water, and then you can catch these incredibly long waves that take you into the, through the bay all the way to the beach. And then you get back out and you walk and then you jump back in. And it's, and it's like this destination that people from all over the world want to come and, and surf. And it's so cheap too. That's the other cool thing. Like I was I was part of a surf club, and I was paying $7 every time I went to go surfing for a board, a wetsuit, and somebody out there in the water with me making sure I wouldn't drown, <laughs> you yeah. know?
1: It's uh, so. basically free, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really awesome. Um, and it was, it, was a, it was like my way of getting outside and being out in nature, as it were. <laughs>
1: And, and uh, a culture that was, uh, sounds like a lot more accepting than maybe the culture in, in town was
2: for of women. Yeah. I mean, like I, at my first year before I really got into surfing, I tried to go to a few, I went to a few beach clubs there. So along the coast in Casablanca, there are beach clubs where they have pools and then they have like private beaches where it's just generally cleaner and nicer and you pay like a certain amount of money to get in. And, um, I remember I was there one one time my first year in Morocco and uh, I was out wanting to swim a little bit in the ocean and the the lifeguard came out after me and he was like you can't swim you shouldn't swim and I was like oh is something wrong and he was like oh no women can't swim <laughs> <laughs> and I was like oh, oh um, okay what he saying
0: <laughs> you was he saying can't swim like he didn't think that they were able to swim or that they were yeah. forbidden
2: Oh no, that it was not safe for me because I was a woman, and I. Oh, you weren't you weren't strong
1: and capable enough. Sure,
2: mm-hmm. right. and so that wasn't non-existent in the surf community, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you just probably
1: surf the- surfed every chance you got, right?
2: I did, and I did a lot. I did as many surf trips as I could. So renting a car, driving down to the south, and just you know trying because this because the surfing was even better in the south, and it's warmer, and um, you know. Uh, not that I ever got that cold in Casablanca, but
0: mm. so the uh, the teaching that you were doing in uh, Casablanca was it university age kids or younger?
2: yes, it was it was I was teaching English as a second language to um, students who were i in one in the film studies department um, Morocco's very it's got a very lively and active film industry. Um, mo- any movie you see that's set like anywhere from Morocco to Pakistan, basically is most likely filmed in Morocco. <laughs> um, and they, because it's just, they've got all the setup there. they've got the studios and they have a huge film industry and it's safe and it's cheap and it's stable and all of those things. So um, I had a, group of students who were studying to work in that industry and wanted to learn English because it's a international language. And then I also taught, um, a class called American studies. And it was like, whatever I really wanted to teach as it were, <laughs> um, to, uh, a group of students in the English department. And I taught a group, uh, a class called, um, just like it was writing basically basic, uh, Okay college level writing. So why do I
0: remember you like being in charge of musicals?
2: That was when I, so I spent my first year on a Fulbright, but I stayed for two more years after that in Morocco. I got a job teaching second grade at the American school. So it's an international independent school. I taught second grade and that was where I got into musicals first through the high school musical, the, um, high school theater teacher, somebody told her, that I had a dance background and she asked me to choreograph and I felt very uncomfortable because I didn't feel that experience, but th- that's the kind of thing that you can t- that happens when you're in, uh, you know, um, I guess international settings where um, it's a small community. It, the, the, the school community was small and there. And so it was like, you're it, will you do this? And <laughs> um, so I did, and then got more involved with the lower school musicals as well.
0: Okay, so that was kind of your first real stab at, you know, uh, younger age education, which is what you went to school in the first place to study, right? <laughs> yeah. And so um, you stayed for three years. Uh, and then you ended up going um y- like at what point did, did Montessori get on your radar, uh, as a, as a style of education? You know, I know our mom is a Montessori educator, but like talk about that influence and how, how you ended up going back for more schooling.
2: I don't know if you remember mom, uh, I mean, I feel like she always talked about Montessori being just like foundational and fundamental to how she approached parenting and she encouraged, she hasn't, hasn't she encouraged you as well at some point? She wants us all to have Montessori training. Do you, do you remember Yeah.
0: That? I mean, yeah. And, and I think for a time I was, I was going to actually go and do that too. Uh, and then when you actually went and got a master's, I was like, wow, that's so inspiring. But I haven't, <laughs> I haven't done it yet.
2: Well, for years, mom was like, you know, when I first started expressing interest in teaching, you know, she was like, well, you should do Montessori. And I, you know, thought I, you know, knew better than my own mom and which was totally, you know, (laughs) not true. But we are, we have such kind of pride and good ideas, right? When we're young. So I was like, I don't know, I'm not going to do that. Um, (laughs) And uh, so as soon as I started teaching second grade, I was calling mom almost every day, you know, <laughs> saying, "Uh, this happened today. What do I do?" You know, um, and wanting feedback and advice, and she would always say, "Well, if you were in a Montessori classroom, here's how we would handle it," you know. And mm-hmm. I got so frustrated hearing that, uh, but after a while, it was just in my head enough that, and I began to notice, um, like gaps in my knowledge, gaps in my knowledge about child development in general. Like, just I felt like there was kind of a Um, kind of translation gap between like what my expectations were and how I spoke and worked as an adult and second graders, you know, and I didn't feel adequately prepared to kind of, you know, bridge that divide. Um, And then also I felt like I was asking children to do a lot of things that were not in their nature, like sit in a desk, don't move, raise your hand if you want to speak, stand in a line, be silent, walk in a line. I mean, all of these things that take so much time um, and all exist for a reason. I'm not saying like they were just pointless, like we do this because it's fun. Um, but I just felt like it was not really paying attention to like children's natural tendencies as it were, you know, that, that what they really want and how they're wired to grow and move and develop and learn. So,
0: mm. um, so can you, for, for somebody that doesn't understand or that has not heard much about Montessori before, can you go through like some of the hallmarks about what Montessori is and and its fundamentals?
2: Sure. I'll try to keep it brief. This is one of those topics (laughs) that once I start talking, I don't stop talking, which will shock you because I feel like I haven't stopped talking since we started this whole thing. But um, (laughs) (laughs) okay. um, So Maria Montessori was a doctor in Italy. She was uh, one of the first, she was not the first, but she was one of the first um, women in Italy who earned a medical Degree and um, she was. She faced a lot of adversity to get that, as you can imagine. She um, was told things like, um, You can't dissect um, bodies and you know, do those practice procedures with the men in the room because they're working with naked bodies and that would be inappropriate for a woman to also be in the room. So she had to go into the morgue late at night by herself and do all of that um, by herself with a bunch of uh, dead bodies, which is kind of creepy, but it just kind of shows you like she was just like a really fierce, independent um, thinker and she went after what she wanted. Anyways, she got relegated to working with um, people in what Italy then called the insane asylums where basically anybody who was differently abled was placed. So whether you, whether you were deaf or had a learning disability or you know a missing body part, whatever it was it was if you were differently able you're put in this kind of category. And she began to experiment with um, edu- like educating and how she can help people with these different abilities learn and then once she had developed enough of a theory and enough material she applied it to quote unquote normal children and it was just revolutionary um, she is one of the only educational and developmental psychologists or theorists that i've ever read about and studied that created a theory of development like a psychological theory of this is how people develop starting in the womb all the way through death to she created that and then she also created, and here's how we should educate. And um, created materials and um, lessons and um, like uh, classroom routines and things like that, just kind of to, to match up. Like, this is, uh, you know, a child's focus in this phase of development. So, this is what we should do to help them learn. Um, she was pretty revolutionary in that she believed and advocated that children naturally will develop they are she has this idea called self-construction so as a, a children a child is going to develop no matter what and they're going to construct themselves and we as teachers and as adults in children's lives we don't like open up their heads and pour in knowledge and close their heads back up right <laughs> they make their own knowledge they make their knowledge by working with their hands and by doing and if you think about like anything you've ever learned it's not because somebody told you to learn it at at a certain point you had to decide I'm going to learn this and then you learned it. (laughs) And so she kind of taps into like those natural tendencies, those natural drives and how we can um, basically the whole goal of education in her eyes is independence. So children want to be independent. They want to be able to move their own bodies. That's their first challenge. Right. (laughs) Um, And then Physical independence is kind of that first phase of development. So, learning how to tie their shoes and drink from a glass and get themselves dressed. You know, she said that children want to do this, like, they don't want us doing it for them. (laughs) And so, that's their goal. And then in the elementary, it moves into more intellectual independence. Children want to know the whys of the world and they want to know how to figure things out for themselves. Um, And then, you know, you move through the phases of development until adolescence, which is more socially driven. You want a lot of social independence in that time. And then finally like economic independence in those later kind of college and early twenties years. So
0: Mm. yeah, she, uh, uh, no, (laughs) uh, no, that that was really good. I think you kept it brief. That that was awesome. I I also remember reading about Maria Montessori. I mean, an incredible woman, but also that she, she felt this burden societally because she came of age at a time when, a lot of people in that generation had just died uh, in the Great War. Or was mm-hmm. it was either that or World War II. It was the Great War. It was War. the
2: Great War, and then she lived through World War II. Um,
0: and she, she, she felt this burden, like, societally. We, we need to equip the next generation as best we can. And so it, it came not only from an uh, interest in developmental psychology and education, but also this, she felt like she had to uh, contribute to society in such an impactful way.
2: Yeah. I mean, she, she talks about having, like, we need to create what she calls the new child because she felt she went through two world wars. Um, and she felt like, you know, if there's any hope for us to move beyond that, you know, we have to have people who think differently, who are not trapped by like the way that previous generations have thought and solved problems. And so she was pretty revolutionary in that she felt like if we, um, Basically, give children the keys to the world, as it were, and help them to be critical thinkers. And then they'll solve the these problems. Or and and that we need to teach them to think about things in a new way. It's not about pleasing the adults and like creating little like replicas of here's how we solve this. So now you learn to solve it this way. You know, from from math all the way to like bigger social issues. It's more like her whole approach is how do you want to solve this? (laughs) What Mm -hmm. makes sense? You know, can you figure it out? Can you figure out a formula? Can you, you know, um, create your own knowledge and, and think about things, um, differently. And she did believe that children were like blank slates, you know, and that we have hope when they come into the world, like we have hope that they can, um, learn and do things differently than, than we have.
0: (laughs) So can can you give an example of some uh, teaching something to a, a child in the, you know, the, the regular standard public school system way, and then also the Montessori way and, and how they contrast?
2: Yeah, I'll try. I mean, I, yes, I can do that. I just want to also be really careful because um, I was first trained to teach in a traditional way. And I grew up learning in traditional schools. And I just want to say that it works. And it is people all over the world succeed in those environments. So I don't, I don't want to spend time like, being like, this is good and this is bad. Do you it? Know I, you know yeah, I, mean? um, I
0: think it's it's more just to illustrate the the difference in style yeah. that that Montessori has to like public school. But uh, yeah, I think that's a For really sure. important point to make.
2: Yeah. Um. So I feel like the best and example that comes to mind right away because I'm in the middle of helping some of my students through right now is the multiplication, the long multiplication algorithm. Okay. So in um, schools, it's dif- it's different, like. There are all kinds of different ways of teaching it now, but in general, um, we start with the algorithm, right? We go, this is how you multiply. Now let's figure out like why this works and, but this is the standard algorithm and this is how you do it. Um, And in Montessori, we have, first of all, everything we teach is through a material. So it's hands-on and it's everything that's abstract is made concrete. We have five different materials that we use that teach the concept of long multiplication in literally five different ways. And they are presented as games to the children, right? And uh, a child does not need to know math facts to start doing long multiplication up to four digits in the multiplier and up to like six or seven digits in the multiplicand. So it's like, they can be doing huge, awesome problems, you know, where they're going up to the millions, you know, which is so exciting for kids. Um, (laughs) And they, they have, we use bead bars, so they don't, they can count beads. They don't have to know that three times two is six um, to, to solve problems. Um, And so basically each material has a, what we call a passage to abstraction where we start to introduce more and more to the children as they're ready. Um, here's how you write this down on paper. And the materials are designed to literally like translate to the algorithm on paper, but in a way that the children can kind of figure it out. And that when they start to do the algorithm, they're like, Oh yeah, I, this makes sense. I know why we add that zero, you know, and I know why I start with the units and then I, and then I go to the tens um, when I'm multiplying and, and things like that. And, and it's just because, it's 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 become their nature. It's how they it's how they're naturally like solving those problems because of the materials. Um, so yeah, and it's all we all do everything in group work as well. So it's not like one child is sitting there like doing multiplication by themselves. Everything is done in groups, and it's presented almost like a game, you know. And it's
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, hands on.
1: So. so when I was in school, it was twenty twenty five kids. There was lecturing. We would have uh, in-class assignments, homework assignments, but it felt like the pace was the pace and it didn't matter uh, where the average student was, where the best student was, or where the worst student was. And it was on the parents and occasionally the teacher to help struggling kids come along, but it was a very homogenous approach to the whole thing. I've always thought of Montessori. I've had friends that have gone through Montessori. It it feels much more uh, focused on the individual and so how, how do you pull that? How many students do you have uh, today that you're teaching?
2: I have 14 students, which is a small number. Um, an ideal Montessori classroom size is like 25 to 30 um, because Maria Montessori believed that the adult should not get it too involved. Like she wanted the kids to run things, you know? <laughs> um, and <laughs> the adult is there obviously to give the lessons, but not to like step into every situation and solve every problem for every child. Um, So I'm glad you brought that up because like that's another like amazing thing about Montessori and I think that it is so powerful and so fun as a teacher to be able to match like a child's natural interest and um, uh, pace um, as they're learning things. I have some students right now who are doing like high school algebra in my class because they're just ready to go with it, you know, and there's a lot of stuff that I don't even quite understand that I have to like look up and try to try to figure it out and then, (laughs) and then introduce it to them. But we approach it like, all right, let's see if we can figure this out together. Um, And then, you know, I have students who are still working on, on math facts and um, dynamic subtraction. And it just, it's the range, you know, and everybody has their strengths and weaknesses and there's no, like prioritizing like oh well you know so and so is good at math so that means they're a better student than you you know like there's none of that um the way that i do it in my classroom so in montessori the way this classroom works helps because the children um learn skills to be very um independently motivated and choose their own work so when they come in the classroom they unless i say to them hey you have a lesson first thing with me this morning They greet their friends, they take out their work journals, and they decide what they're going to do. And then everybody is working. And so then that frees me up to be able to sit with a child for a longer period of time if they need me to help them explain something, to gather groups, and to be very free form with it. So I can um, mix groups up a lot and I can target to specific kind of like paces and interests and things like that. Um, And I plan for each individual child first. So I kind of say, where, where are they and what are they ready for? And then once I have that, I have like a little grid (laughs) where I start to kind of draw out connections and say, okay, so-and-so and and -and so-and-so could be put together for this. And, and we just, we just go like that. Um, And the kids inspire each other a lot too. So
1: that's got to be incredibly intellectually stimulating for you as the teacher too.
2: It is. I'm learning I have to learn about things all the time. I had, I had students, I, you know, um, told a story about the uh, industrial, like sort of the period of time right after the civil war in the United States and the industrial revolution here. And, Some of them got so interested in that. So I was like, okay, got to find out some more information about this. So I spent a lot of time researching about inventions of the Industrial Revolution and (laughs) creating resources to give them um, uh, because they really wanted to learn about them. (laughs) And uh, I don't know those things right now. (laughs) I mean, now now I do, but uh, yeah, it's cool. I mean, I learned a lot about, uh, like I learned how to do Bohr's diagrams last year because I had students really interested in um, the periodic table of elements and how to draw atoms. and so
0: like okay here we go so um are there are there ever times when kids interests go in a direction that is like not quote-unquote productive or like won't help them pass standardized testing or that that kind of thing like and you have to kind of guide them from being distracted and dissipating to to whatever I I don't know what how you deem something as valuable in terms of educational value but like how do you decide what to direct kids to and do you ever have to put guardrails up
2: that's such a good question and that's something that like it's, um, when you go through training as a Montessori teacher, like there's this huge unpacking of like all of our biases and our prejudices about what is productive, what is work, right? Because, um, the way that Montessori approached it, she approached everything through observation and she, um, you know, she created this whole theory and all of her ideas about children, the way they learn based on observing them. And now, however many years later, neuroscientists are starting to study the brains of children and they are basically confirming all of these things that she writes about and says is happening, but she figured it out just by observing. So like one of the biggest things we do or are taught to do is to observe. So, um, you know, I have, it's, it's interesting. Um, because we have this idea of what is meaningful work and what is meaningful learning and what isn't. And I think, um, in Montessori, we try to fight back against that because, um, unless there is some sort of obstacle for a child, if they're naturally free following their developmental instincts and all their needs are met, then they are naturally going to be drawn to learn. And we have to, we trust that. And so, um, if a child is, Doing something with a material or doing something and and I'm like, what are they doing? Like, why is this interesting for them? Why, like, why is this productive? You know, I don't actually know. I'm not in that child's brain, so I have to stand stand back and observe and watch. Now, you know, on the other, on the flip side of things, I do. I certainly have students who start to just want to mess around. I'm just gonna draw a maze and and. I'm not just going to draw a maze for the first time because that's kind of cool. Learning how to draw a maze, um, that's cool work, you know. G- that's geometry. That's measuring, you know. <laughs> um, but I'm going to draw a maze for the hundredth time this week, you know. <laughs> mm. And so at that point, um, yes, it is my job to step in. And if kids are just messing around, you know, I yes, I step in, and that that is done through the expectation setting in my classroom. Like what is the expectation of you when you're here is that you are learning and working and work can be so many different things. And I talk to kids all the time about like, I don't expect that you're sitting and focusing for three hours straight because we have three hour work cycles in the classroom. Um, stand up and go take the jump rope out and go for a jump rope. Take, take out your knitting for a little bit. If you just need to knit and chat for a little bit with your friends, because talking and having a conversation is work for children. And that's something we overlook a lot as adults because we're so used to it. Um, but learning to have a conversation, a back and forth uh, is, well, that's a skill, you know? Um, so yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Believe me. It's uh hey, hey Paul, you're on mute, buddy.
1: This happens to me. Uh, once an episode. <laughs> The good news is that it won't happen again. Uh, Yeah. Daniel and I have learned how to be uh, well, become better at active listening. And it's, and it's hard. It's hard to actively listen. It's hard to uh, Mm -hmm. productively contribute to a conversation. And so Mm -hmm. when you're doing it for the first time and you're, you're not fully developed in any way as a child, yeah, it could be really difficult, but super valuable. So I'm glad you guys highlight that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, with the work stuff, it's, it's often about tapping into what that child is interested in and setting, making expectations really clear and having like systems of accountability. So I sit down with each of my students once a week and I, we talk about what they did that week. And so if they spent all day, every day reading a book, I say, okay, you spent a lot of time reading this week. That's great. But next week we're going to make some different choices. And what do you want? Here are your options. What do you want to choose from those? You know? Um, And the goal is for, is to give them the skills of time management and, um, you know, motivation and self-directed learning because I could direct it all day. You know, I could say, now you do this and now you do this, but then they're not gaining those skills. And so it's okay if they fail sometimes, you know, it's okay if they mess around for a day uh, because the next day we say, okay, well that didn't go so well. What do we need to put in place here so that you can make some better choices? Um, And, you know, independence is a skill and it's, it's not like I just let them be free. You know, I have like certain kids need more support until they figure it out. Um, and the goal is always to take away those structures that I put in place. Like if a child has assigned work every day or, you know, the goal is eventually to get to a place where they're, they don't need that anymore. Um, so if I've got something in place that just perpetually is like going on and, on and on and on and not helping, then I need to stop as an adult and say, this isn't working for this kid. So you gotta figure, figure out something else to help them self direct or it's, yeah it's such a
0: cool it's such a cool paradigm to be thinking about equipping kids for success and letting them do their own thing rather than feeling like you have to be there every step of the way and and uh assess them and and continually um test them um what was i going to say the so so when maria when maria montessori was around uh there wasn't and this this is kind of a question for you is is there weren't like uh, the the amount of technology. There wasn't the amount of technology that there is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm thinking like YouTube and iPads, and there also wasn't the amount of just supercharged sources of dopamine, like super processed foods, like sugary stuff. And these are the kinds of things that people in general, but especially kids, can get super super sucked into.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: do you feel like as I, what do you think is the Montessori approach to? Um, a kid getting sucked into that into a rabbit hole of you know technology addiction or or something of of that sort because you know you were saying you uh what was it you remove obstacles and you make sure that their needs are met you know those are the two things uh is this kind of are these kinds of new things that have happened in in the last 50 years um obstacles
2: um it can be, you know, it's like anything will poison you if you eat too much of it, you know. <laughs> um, so can be, a. I mean, technology is a tool. It's designed to be a tool. It can open a lot of doors. It can be really, it, I mean, we're able to have this conversation right now because of technology. I'm able to stay in touch with my students right now um, during a pandemic because of technology, you know, so it, you know, I don't think anything is inherently bad or good. Um, but in terms of exposure and um being aware of that definitely I mean something that the the question of technology is still one that is being worked out in the Montessori community and a lot of people have different opinions about it so I can just share mine um and that is that um I think that having an awareness about how to use technology is important Children are now expected to hand in all of their written assignments uh, typed, you know, through uh, interfaces such as Google Classroom or email, you know, by the time they're in middle school. So I would not be doing my job as an upper elementary teacher if I did not prepare my students to be able to do that. Um, So being aware of, like, the expectations of the 21st century and the world they live in is important. Um, I think that coding is now... um, you know, it's a language that kids can learn starting b- very young. And it is now um, a a job. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like that didn't exist 20 years ago. And now it's like a, a huge industry. Mm-hmm. So introducing them to coding, I think, um, is, uh, I think, a, a cool thing to do. I don't know anything about it. So what I've done is I've uh, reached out to my parent community and asked, you know, I, I'm in Seattle. So <laughs> there's a lot of uh, tech people here. So I just asked, Parents who feels comfortable coming in and teaching a few basic things, you know, and, um, it's an option for the kids just like any other work choice, um, in my classroom. So, um, in general, my classroom is a haven, I would say from technology. We have one computer shared between 30 children. (laughs) Um, and so that is, and that's, and we have, well, we have an iPad too. Um, so one computer and one iPad and, They have to get special permission to use the ipad it's only if the computer is in use and they need they need it for research um and if they've had the lesson on safe internet research um (laughs) so anyway you know we just it's it's not it's definitely not pervasive in in the classroom because i do believe that um lots of screen time is not developmentally helpful for children um that we do learn through our hands and there's all this neuroscience that backs it up but you know we've got these We've got these hands and this is how we learn this is how our brain is built is by the communication between the hands and the brain so working with your hands is important working on paper is important working with materials is important so i really emphasize that and when kids say to me like things like well the computer will just tell me if i spelled it wrong you know i say oh we talk you know i show them a poem of fully misspelled words and i'm like no the computer said all these words were spelled correctly so we can't trust the computer you know and we talk about um you know being critical users of technology Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I have my students typing, um, and sometimes coding. Um, and if they exhaust encyclopedias books in the classroom and they go to the public library, you know, this is pre Corona, of course. Um, and they still can't find the answer to a research question that they're working on, then they can use the internet, (laughs) you know? Um, but we kind of just put up a lot of barriers because, technology these days is designed to be user friendly, you know, a two year old can, or less than 18 month old can work an iPad. Right. Um, So we don't need to teach kids how to do that. And, uh, you know, so I think it's important to um, use it as use them as tools, be aware of the expectations, you know, of, of our world and of the 21st century, but then also be like critical about how much, and especially right now in distance learning, I have been very, um, wary of giving my students too much screen time. You know, it's one of my way, main ways of communicating with them and giving them lessons, but I'm really trying to push them towards making materials at home and working with their hands. And, you know, we have a weekly handwork club over Zoom so that like we're just doing like knitting and crocheting and things like that, you know, um, just, just to encourage that. Cause I think it's really important and it's really easy to just sit and, you know, watch YouTube videos our day all day or do Khan Academy all day. And, um, I had some students who like got really excited about that at the beginning of this and then their motivation waned really quickly um, because it's just, it's not as engaging.
0: I think that's a great answer. Um, So uh, real quick, like there are two more things I want to do. I want to, there's a question that Paul and I like to ask every episode. um, And then I want to ask about distance learning specific, the intersection of distance learning with Montessori. So hopefully (laughs) we can cram that in seven minutes.
1: Yeah, yeah. We, we we can do it. And we can also add uh, what's your cat's name, Ariel?
2: Oh, uh, Winston. Yeah, did you see?
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I just, I, it tells us about the guest, what their, they name their pets. Yeah, oh, yeah. so I, Winston, Daniel, I guess. For Churchill. Ah, <laughs> I see. Nice, even better. There it is. That's perfect. Uh, so uh, have you heard this question before? Has Daniel told you the question we typically ask in the podcast? No, this
2: is a complete surprise.
1: I, I'll give you a very short version of it. You're 25 years old. Uh, you you have no responsibilities other than yourself and you have two paths you can go down. You can either join the military or do stand-up comedy.
2: (laughs) Um, (laughs) My, I, I, like by reflex immediately was like, stand-up comedy, stand-up comedy, stand-up comedy. (laughs) And that is, I think, I guess that's about me. Because
1: you're running to it or you're running away from the military?
2: Running away from the military. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I, I think I could like mm, appreciate the fact that I think in standup comedy, I I guess in any situation, but for me, that would be really outside my comfort zone. And while that has been like, I've put myself through some challenging situations in my life by doing that. I think that's something I'm always drawn to doing like something new, something different, something hard.
1: (laughs) I have have a feeling you could iterate to a place where you'd be pretty good at it.
2: Yeah, it's hard. (laughs)
1: super hard yeah
0: yeah but if you're around kids all day and figuring out how they work and observing people i feel like a crowd of people at a stand-up comedy club wouldn't be too different
2: just tell some stories in my classroom
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah cool so uh this yeah all that technology talk is a pretty good segue to um what's been going on the last few months so uh, washington was an early hotspot of the coronavirus when it first you know came to the states and uh Washington responded by locking down and uh, schools closed for a minute. And then um, y- y'all went to distance learning. So how has that been specifically from the lens of a, of a Montessori school teacher to be doing distance learning with your students?
2: Um, I think it I mean, like, like everybody and everything in this situation, it was, it's completely unprecedented and it was completely like we had no idea what we're doing. Um, I feel pretty f- Fortunate in some ways because I was given a lot of autonomy um, in terms of developing what I Would be doing with my students. So I worked in collaboration with the lower elementary teacher at my school And it was basically the two of us deciding. Hey, what do we want to do here? Um, and we worked really hard to Stay true to the Montessori um, Principles we practiced independence as much as possible Um, because, you know, in our minds, the goal is obviously and always going to be that we get back in the classroom. And those are the two skills that are going to benefit children the most when they get back into the environment, into our classrooms, Um, if they are excited about learning and then if they have skills in being independent with that. Um, And then other than that, we just wanted to support the families. You know, (laughs) parents were thrown into this situation that they, um, you know, have never been put in before we're like all of a sudden, you know, the, you have your children all around you all the time. And then you're like the main interface between, you know, the, the teacher and the learning and the, you know, like I'm not there. Do you know what I mean? So I'm relying so much on collaborating with parents, um, right now. So the way we approached it is we first asked every child to, um, start to work on a routine, a daily schedule, because that's super important for children. And so, and we knew it would be different for every child because every home and family environment is different. So we asked the kids to partner with their parents and to um, work on that. And my students, the older ones, were pretty much easily able to do that. The younger students had some more help and guidance from their teacher. And then we asked them to come up with a list of five things they were interested in learning about. And we just ran with those. We were like, all right, here we go. You know? And, (laughs) um, since then we have settled into a routine where I meet with all my students on Mondays. Um, and we have like a 20 minute zoom individual meeting where we talk about the work they did the week before, what they're interested in doing this week. And then we kind of, I spell out um, in a record that I send to their parents, like their goals for each week. Um, for that week, what they're going to work on, and the video lessons they're going to watch, and the resources they need, and then um, I we have a community meeting once a week. Um, like I said, we had a, we have a handwork club. I do some end of the week check-ins for the kids who need that accountability still, um, and I do a lot of impromptu meetings with both with parents and with students. So if they're working on something they don't understand it, they can email me, and I jump on the Zoom, and they get on, and I'm available them as much as possible. Um, I've had some parent meetings just to, 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 they could kind of talk through like, here are the challenges right now at home and I can give as much and advice as I possibly can in the situation, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, our goal is, is that they're, they're learning, but you know, my, my approach was to really reduce the pressure and the expectations because this is like, this isn't, Unprecedented situation. Now, everyone keeps saying that, but it's really true. And we, I mean, parents, I feel like naturally we're putting pressure on themselves. Like, oh, I've got to make sure my kid is still learning, you know. And and we had a parent meeting in which I said, like, there, we are aware of um, areas of weakness and and some lagging skills. We are aware of all those, but there might be some that we just say not right now <laughs> because it's not the time, and it's not going to be that way forever, you know. But where we say let's put that to the side. Let's maintain and focus on these other areas of strength and and engagement and things like that. And then we'll come, we'll circle back to that when we're in a better environment or when, you know, that's, that's the goal or the hope at least. I have older students who are graduating. And so with them, I have some checklist items where if they don't know how to do X, Y, Z, we're working on those things. And that's a more of a a little bit more of a pressure, but even with that, you know, (laughs) um, Standardized testing was canceled. Like, I don't know about the rest of the country, but in Washington state, just totally done. And, um, I think, I think that was a good kind of not, not that we really use standardized testing in in my school. We do it to be a practical experience, but not for the results. Um, but that was just a good indicator of where we are right now in education, which is like, let's just take this pressure off. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and let's support families to stay sane and children to stay engaged and, It's hard. I mean, you know, we're all struggling as adults, but I've had some very weepy conversations with students who are just, they're feeling lack of motivation, they're feeling lethargic, they're feeling fatigue and boredom, you know, because all of the things that normally stimulate and interest and excite them have been taken away their friends, their materials, their classroom, their outdoor spaces, you know, their activities. Um, And so just kind of trying to be as empathetic and understanding as possible. Um, and just like be being really compassionate with parents and with kids and with myself.
0: (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Important that last one.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Should we end with a plug for your friend's podcast since you you had been on a podcast before you joined (laughs) us?
2: Yes. I, um, sure. Uh, this is my second podcast interview. Um, and, uh, my first one was with my best friend, hannah um and her sister carly on count me in which is a dance and development podcast and it's awesome
0: (laughs) there it is yeah Yeah. we didn't get into we didn't get into the dance which i think is a huge part of your life and i think it's i mean it's hard to uh capture uh everything about you in an hour but um i really appreciated you know talking about morocco talking about montessori uh and yeah i appreciate the time you gave us today
1: thanks for letting me ramble yeah sorry. we love we no no sorry uh, we love to have you on and i love learning about the surfing thing i think that um maybe on my bucket list now
2: oh definitely should be and it's yeah it's awesome and thanks for letting me ramble um i think at the beginning of this we talked about having a more conversation style and i feel like i just did all the talking so anyway um
0: makes it easier
1: for us <laughs> <laughs> well and, and the episode's about you so it's all good yeah If you
0: enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly.
1: Thanks for listening.